holiday season, treat yourself. Treat yourself to candy. Celebrate the holiday season with the Holiday Crush. They've sprinkled candy with a holiday theme and fun-packed challenges every week for five whole weeks, finishing on January 4th. The more challenges you complete, the better your chances of unwrapping delicious rewards. So, are you ready to crush the holidays? Play the Holiday Crush now. Download it from the App Store, Google Play, or Windows Store for free. Terms and conditions apply. Va a llegar el gol del Arsenal Ozil. Marca Mesut Ozil. Hello and welcome to another Arscast Extra, as always, with James from Gunner Blog. James, goodly morning to you, I guess. Yeah, goodly morning to you too. We're back. We are uh, back. It's, I mean, I, I apologise to any listeners because it's been a very interlully interlull, and I feel like our absence may have contributed to quite how interlully it has been. Yes. So, we're back. We are back, and well-rested, well-fed, well-watered. I think you were you were away in Spain, as was mm-hmm. I. Uh, I. I suppose the question that people will want to know is, how, exactly how many ham on ruffles did you eat? I ate, uh, I think I ate about two bags wow. over the course of ten days. Yeah, that's, that's I mean, not that's, bad. Yeah, what about you? Um, I didn't eat any ham on ruffles at all while I was there, but I did bring some back. Okay, that's yeah. fair enough. I mean, there were a lot of other sensational tastes and flavours in Spain to embrace yeah. while you're away. Um, but my loyalty to ham on ruffles is, you know, pretty strong. The brand affinity runs through my blood. So <laughs> as do those crisps at this point. So. Yeah. But I haven't brought any back Um which is a very smart move on your part. A, a suitcase worth, I imagine. Well, just one or two bags. One or two bags. I'll go at them slowly. You know, a little bit of uh, moderation after what has been a, a fairly um, big week of, of eating and drinking because, uh, as I said in the blog today, I was in San Sebastian and, mm. I, you know, I lived in Spain before and I understand the food there, but uh, I have never in my life experienced anything like the food in, in San Sebastian. It's it's just out of this world in terms wow. of the, the quality, the availability, the price. Um, it, like, genuinely, you'd have lunch and then find another place and go, well, I'll, I'll, I think I'll just have another lunch. Why not? Yeah. Um, it, it's unbelievable. So anybody who is thinking about potentially going to San Sebastian, if you like food, go there and spend many days walking up and down the beach because you do need to do some walking uh, to sort of offset all the calories you're piling into your body um, straight away. But, uh, oh, God, it's really, really something else. Are we to assume that's what has lured Nacho Monreal to that part of Europe, the the food principle? I'm not going to lie. I was in San Sebastian and I was thinking to myself, yeah, fair play, Nacho. Fair play. I would have done exactly the same thing. I can't begrudge you this move whatsoever. The town is beautiful. The beaches are beautiful. The people are really friendly. And there's just amazing food everywhere. I know as a professional athlete, you probably have to be a little more, um, what's the word? Your intake has to be a bit more moderate than, than mine was. But as a place to live, 
it'd be amazing. And as a place to live and play football, man, yeah, Nacho's got himself a great move there. A really great move. Smart guy, I guess. I yeah. mean, uh, speaking of food, while I was away in Mallorca, I stayed in a hotel or a finca, like a sort of country house, where they fed the wasps. Hang on. Mm. Wasps, not bees. Wasps. So they would put a little bowl of ham out for the wasps, a little bowl of ham on for the wasps. What was the logic behind this? Was it like if you keep the wasps happy, they won't they won't go yeah. at you? It was to pacify the wasps. It was like a sacrifice to the wasp gods. So basically they served dinner on their terrace. Mm. And before we arrived there, I sort of flicked through the TripAdvisor reviews and while they were overwhelmingly positive, there were one or two that said things like, a great stay, you know, brilliant food, a lovely location, just a shame about the wasps. Uh-oh. And I was like, what's going on? There's some sort of wasp racket running in this place. And lo and behold, when we did get there, when you did sit down to eat, there were a lot of wasps around. I, they've sort of, I don't know what they've, they've taken over to a certain extent. So what they do, at the same time as they're feeding everybody else, they just put out a little bowl of ham for the wasps and then the wasps all go and eat the ham instead of bothering you and bothering your food. Who knew that wasps liked ham? I would have thought, I thought it'd they be like sweet stuff. Yeah, honey or jam or whatever, but what a ham. Wow. Turns out they love a little bit of salty ham. So if you ever if you ever see a wasp and you're like, "Oh, I just want to give it a little snack, give it a little stroke, a pet." Give it a little bit of ham as well. Yeah. And if, of course, if you're ever being chased by a load of wasps, just drop an entire leg of Spanish ham behind you and they will just go, stop and devour the ham. You can get away Turns safely, out. yeah. I don't know if this only works with Spanish wasps, I should point out. Maybe it's different. With, mm. Maybe English wasps just want, I don't know, a shepherd's pie or something. <laughs> it remains to be seen. But I've never seen anything like it. That was mind-blowing. Right, OK. Well, that's, uh, that's information that I think we can all use in our day-to-day lives. For mm. sure. Um, yeah, we had, a, we had an interesting journey back from Barcelona uh, yesterday because um, there were some very serious uh, thunderstorms. I'm sure you've seen it uh, in your time in Spain, uh, whether this time or other. But when it rains there, it really, really rains. And when you yeah. get thunderstorms, they're really very impressive. And one of, one of the, the very first time I was in Barcelona, we, we came in during a thunderstorm. We landed. We got to the place we were staying. And we were able to sit on a terrace. It was lovely and warm in August. And just watch this thunderstorm pass over the city. So you see the lightning. The thunder goes off. And you're protected from it, you're having a nice drink. It's not so great when the thunderstorm is passing over just when you're about to take off and the pilot goes, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm from the flight deck, uh, just a little uh, weather advice here. The uh, They've told us that it could be an hour, an hour and a half uh, before we get going and everyone on the plane is like, oh, and then you look out of the window and the sky is black, and there's lightning crashing yeah. everywhere, and the thunder's going... <laughs> and you're thinking, okay, probably it's best... Like the upside down from Stranger Things. Yeah, a little bit. Probably best. So two and a half hours on the plane before we even got going. So that's, um, that's well, what can you do about the weather? Not very much. I like that the pilot sounds like I do when I'm trying to sound like I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> he uses the same vocal tricks. Very yeah, clever. Uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> 
so yeah, how are you? How are you settling back into this uh, interlull? You got back last week, did you? I got back last week. I got right. back on Friday. Um, I have re-embraced interlull, uh, and it's been uh, yeah, what a way to welcome me back. The, the soft, warm arms of the interlull wrapping around me, enveloping me, and in ennui. Mm. Uh, I, I tell you what, yesterday happened to me. I met Perma Saka. That was exciting. Well, yeah, I, I'm quite jealous about this because he's obviously launching his book and they were doing some media interviews and, and what have yeah. you. And I was I was invited along to to take part in this and to meet the BFG and to talk to him about the book. Um, but, of course, I wasn't around. I wasn't available. So Andrew Allen went in, in my stead. So I'm quite jealous of you and Andrew. How was it to, to meet the BFG? Well, how was it to see Andrew Allen, first of all? Well, a of delight, course. As always. Uh, well-tailored, showed, well-groomed. Showed me up, as you can imagine. Uh, <laughs> well, you did, but, go in your, you did go in your J-train. Uh, I went in my hobo outfit, of course. Uh, but uh, it was great. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd, I'd never met Pear, and he's incredibly impressive in the flesh. I, I'd, I'm not talking about how tall he is as well. Uh, just a really smart guy. And I sort of whizzed through his book, at the weekend and, and read that. And mm. I, it's definitely something worth checking out because he's got such an interesting perspective as a footballer. So many of these autobiographies kind of blur into one and they just become an account of game after game. But mm. He really does have a, a broader perspective than that. And he talks a lot about, I think, you know, the fact that he wasn't really expected to make it. You know, this guy who was told he wasn't at the technical level, he was the wrong shape and size to be a footballer, and yet who, despite that, went on to win the World Cup, reached the very pinnacle of the mm. game. And it is very interesting to not only read that story, but sort of think and talk to him, as we did yesterday, about how that might reflect onto the club's academy and you know what he can do with his experiences to, to help younger players coming through, whether they become pros or not. I mean, yeah. he's really focused on people who don't make it because it is the 1% who do and and that's really interesting you know he said yesterday he considers it as much as a victory if someone becomes a first team footballer at Arsenal coming through the academy or if they become a, a doctor in America you know for mm. him those things are in kind of equal standing and yeah I was really uh, really impressed by him and I'm really glad that he's working in the club in the capacity that he is yeah I think one of it, it's you know something I, I know Andrew is going to do a piece for the website and no doubt you're going to do something for for the athletic about it mm. um, but I you know I think one of the things that really impresses me about him is the uh, I suppose his focus on the human side of uh, his job and his responsibility to these young men, first and foremost, obviously to try and mould them into good footballers and first-team footballers for Arsenal. But as we know, you know, the, the the hit rate is so low. You know, you you have dozens and hundreds of players who come through the academy who, who aren't going to make it at Arsenal. Um, and they may make it elsewhere. And I think uh, the as a club, we have a very good track record of uh, academy players going on to be professional footballers elsewhere. Not necessarily at Arsenal. Some of them develop later. They might m- not make it above championship level, whatever it might be. You know, the, there is a good track record. So they do get a very good grounding, a good football education. But he really has a focus on on what they need to learn and to understand 
if it doesn't work for them as footballers to to take what they can get from it to be better people, whatever sphere they end up working in, whether it's football or, or something else. So I think I really like that about the way that he views his job and the responsibility that he has as the head of the academy. It's to, to send these guys out um, as well as he can, first and foremost, to be a footballer, but, but after that as people. You know, we forget that, you know, these are young men who need guidance and need rules and boundaries, but also need to understand what what the world is about, you know, because football can be something of a bubble. Yeah, and I forget the precise figure, but there's about 150 kids or so in that academy whose lives he will be impacting in some way. And I think the breadth of that, the scope of that is has really impressed upon him and he is relishing this role, but also aware of what a huge responsibility it is. You know, he's, mm. he's playing a big part in dictating the way some of these guys are going to turn out, some of the way their lives might turn out. Um, but he does seem very aware of that. It's, it's interesting, you know, is this sort of lanky, erudite figure. And it, it's, um, you don't want to make comparisons, but there is a, a, a touch of Arsene Wenger to him, you know, in the way that he reflects on kind of the, the personal the personalities involved that the bigger picture I think you can see a bit of Wenger's influence in him and uh, yeah I was thoroughly impressed he's, he's also just a really fascinating sports person uh, something he talks about in his book is how sort of detailed and specific his personal preparation plan is you know how much work he did outside of conventional training in order to keep himself fit or keep himself Such as sharp any examples uh, I mean, he, essentially, when he came to England, he hired, he brought with him two friends, a couple who were physiotherapists, to essentially live alongside him and develop an entire personal program. That so he would leave training, go around to their place, and embark on a series more exercises. And at times, I think this brought him into conflict with the performance team at Arsenal because he was essentially doing work outside of the syllabus, if you will. Mm. But he just felt that that's what he personally needed. And he, you know, he had time, he he had money. I think he spent quite a lot of his own money in, in doing that, in looking after his body and in, in making sure that he was as prepared as he could be. Um, I don't know what that tells you maybe about what he thought about what Arsenal were doing at that time, but he really, really did have that huge focus, that huge drive mm. to make the absolute best of his capacity because... He talks about this a lot in his book. He, he was aware of his limitations. His game was so focused on simplicity. Win the ball back, try not to go to ground, pass it simply on. And that try was his not focus. To go to his, ground. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, some of his countrymen could learn from that, perhaps. But uh, yeah, that was his his focus and, and his drive. And he, he just was very clear on that. And it's a really interesting perspective. This isn't a footballer who... He's writing a book about, you know, how they were always going to be a star or, you know, how it was mm. destiny. For him, it was really a career and he really, really, really applied himself. And if he can pass some of that mentality and some of that ethic onto the kids in that academy, um, I think that can only be a really good thing. Yeah, I mean, he's been very open, hasn't he, about his own personal issues in terms of, you know, you, you talked about him being aware of his limitations and maybe mm. maybe it's something he, he touches on more fully in the book. I, I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but, you know, that might create an element of self-doubt 
that if you're aware of your limitations, no matter how hard you work, you're not necessarily maybe as talented as that guy or that guy naturally talented. You know, you see some footballers who are just amazingly talented. Some players are grifters. Some players really have to work hard to reach Mm. the level. Um, and, And he spoke about... Um, nervousness and being ill before games and those kind of things. And it's unusual, you know, for a footballer to admit, if not failings, weaknesses in a way, because football has always been perceived as this very this very macho pursuit where any weakness is going to be jumped on either by fans, by media, perhaps teammates in the dressing room environment as well. You know, if you if you um, display anything that might make you different from other people, it can be a difficult thing to deal with unless you have the, the strength of personality um, to deal with that. And it appears like he has had that despite those, those issues that he, he's spoken about in the past. Yeah, I think he's someone who, for quite a long time now, has been able to see a bigger picture. I was struck by, he talks about 2014 when Germany Mm. won the World Cup and he was part of that squad. Uh, But he wasn't always part of the team and he was kind of in and out of that team. And by the end of the tournament, I think he'd been replaced by Mats Hummels uh, at the centre of that defence. But he still had a really important role in the squad and Yogi Love was would kind of use him and Philip Lahm as sort of tactical sounding boards and they were almost brought in as assistant coaches to a certain extent, even though Mertesacker wasn't playing every single minute. I think he did come on in the final for a couple of minutes right at the end. But even then, and that was, I think he was maybe 29 at that point, possibly 30, he was almost taking this sort of senior role where he was, uh, you know, imparting his experience to other players and being a bit of a communicator. And I think, you know, almost since that point in his career, he's been in a, a transition. If you think about his final two seasons at Arsenal, he barely played, you know, he played a handful mm. of games, but for the entirety of his last season at Arsenal, he knew he was going into this technical director role. So, he could spend time essentially swatting up, you know, learning that job after he'd completed training in the morning. So it almost feels like because of knowing his limitations and because of the physical problems that he had with injuries, he has been able to spend about four or five years preparing him for the next stage of his life and the next stage of his career. Uh, and he's absolutely relishing it. I mean, I asked him directly, are you missing playing? And he couldn't have been more emphatic. He was like, no, he's really loving this challenge he has at the academy. And I think he's got a very long-term view of it. I think, you know, he sees those kids coming through. He knows the rewards will be potentially them making the first team and that might take three, four, five years. But, you know, that's what he's here for. Mm. And uh, it's great, you know, I think we've had a problem in the past with a lot of players, a lot of good people leaving the club and maybe not sticking around. And the fact that we have kept hold of this one is brilliant. And the other thing to say is that I, I don't think I fully appreciated quite what an amazing career he had I mean setting aside the World Cup win just looking at his time at Arsenal when you stack it up I mean he was man of the match in the FA Cup final against Chelsea he scored in the FA Cup final against Aston Villa which I had forgotten he scored uh, in 2014 at Wembley in the semi-final against Wigan so he actually was really crucial to all those successes and you know I think will be remembered as a a proper Arsenal captain and a a bit of an Arsenal hero for sure when you think about the goal that he scored against Wigan with what about 10 minutes 8 minutes left in the game Mm. with Arsenal 1-0 down you know that that could have um, it could have 
had a very serious impact on the the, traje- the trajectory of the club at that point. Um, and yeah, look, I think fitting that his his final appearance for the club was in that 2017 final, um, and it was it was amazing. Um, I remember uh, in the build up. You know, nobody was expecting him to to play, but then Koscielny got a red card against Everton, I think, in the final game of the season, and Mustafi mm-hmm. got injured, and all of a sudden you're looking at a guy who's not played all season coming in alongside Rob Holding, who was still at that stage. You know, we still think of Rob Holding as a developing young defender two years ago, even more so. And I think it was Nacho Monreal was the other guy in the in it the back was. three. You know, so um, when you were facing a team as good as Chelsea to put in a performance like that to to sort of uh, have that as the swan song of your your playing career. Um, is really something. Well, look, I'm I'm very much looking forward to reading the book um, and also uh, reading what you've got to write about it, Andrew, as well. Um, so yeah, okay, that was BFG. What else has been going on? Because I'm I'm a little bit out of the loop um, in terms of in terms of the stories. Um, not well, much I, I, <laughs> since we spoke. No, I mean I, I looked at the. Uh, Arsenal sort of international roundup, and I thought it can't be too eventful because the, what they're leading with is Henrik Mkhitaryan scoring twice <clears throat> for Armenia, mm. and I was like, ah, well, that means not a huge amount is happening with Arsenal players. Uh, I mean, the transfer deadline has been and gone since I last spoke to you, and Henrik Mkhitaryan has left. Of oh course, yeah, gone to, oh, yeah, okay. gone to Roma on loan. How did you feel about that? Um, pretty happy. I would say it's a move which I think suits everybody. Um, mm. Whether it ultimately suits Roma uh, remains to be seen, but Arsenal have taken £200,000 a week, another big, big chunk off the wage bill. Um, a player has left who has been generally inconsistent and lightweight. I know he's experienced. And actually, when you think about the final few days of the transfer window, you know, we lost Nacho Monreal, of course, uh, which was a shame, uh, I think, because he's, he's such a he's such a consistent, reliable player. Um, but, you know, he's gone. Koscielny's gone. Alex Iwobi left. Uh, Henrik Mkhitaryan's gone. So whatever you think about them as players, they had a lot of experience. A lot of experience, mm. and you could argue, okay, maybe it was time to move away from them, but um, you still have to find um, people to replace them in the squad. For Mkhitaryan, I think, look, he, he said English football didn't really suit me. He said he wasn't getting a lot of pleasure from Arsenal in the last month because he wasn't playing very much um, at the, in the opening weeks of the season. He was on the bench, really, um, and that was probably a, an indication of, of what his season was going to hold or where he stood in the plans of Unai Emery. But I think it's interesting because it builds or it creates space for for younger players to come through. It's, you know, it's uh, Reese Nelson obviously springs to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, Emile Smith-Rowe, Bakayo Saka, potentially uh, Gabriel Martinelli as well. So, you know, if you're if you're looking at Mkhitaryan as a player who frustrates you, who's lightweight, who's inconsistent, and you think, well, look, can we get as much from these young players as we got from Mkhitaryan for, you know, 20% of the price? then it's a deal that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I think so too. I think one of the interesting things about this deal and, and the departures in general in the last few weeks, you look at Iwobi, you look at Montreal, you look at Mkhitaryan, I think they're all players that Unai Emery 
from a sort of purely tactical perspective, might have liked to have around. There's certainly guys he picked with a lot of regularity last season. Um, you'd say they were probably among his favourites. And I know we had a big influx of talent, both from the academy and from the transfer window, but it, it does kind of show, I think, the model working and that the fact that you know these decisions are probably made slightly beyond Emery's capabilities or capacities in terms of their, the director of football are saying look this is yeah. a sensible thing for us to do Mkhitaryan you might like to bring Mkhitaryan on for 20 minutes at the end of a North London derby but given what we're paying him that's not really viable and I, I'm encouraged by that Yeah I mean do you do you think it is also um, strategic in that it does create space for someone like Reese Nelson where Definitely. where it doesn't allow Emery the the safety first option, I guess, of throwing on a 30-year-old international player who who you know can do a job for you. He doesn't have that anymore. It's not necessarily like a safety net has been taken away, but it's more an encouragement to say, look, trust in this young talent. We believe in it. We want them to get the minutes rather than somebody like Mkhitaryan. Yeah, I definitely think that that's the case. And Nelson stands to be the major beneficiary. Um I, I think Nelson's a really interesting one. He started the first two games of the season and he kind of had a bit of a sliding doors moment right at the end of that first half against Burnley where he put the ball into the back of the net, top of the net from a mm. National Memorial pullback. Would have put us 2-1 in front at the time. Uh, and who knows what a moment that might have been for him. It was ruled out for offside. He came off two minutes later and we haven't seen him since. But I think the Mkhitaryan departure sort of ensures that we will... I mean, certainly in the Europa League, I mean, that's not far away now, our first game in that competition, and you'd think he'd be lined up to play there. But I think this also guarantees him some Premier League playing time, and that could be really valuable to him. He played twice for the England under-21s during the international break. He scored in the first game. Didn't have a great game overall, but scored quite a nice goal, cutting in from that left-hand side. Mm. Uh, and I think that's where the opportunities are, are going to come from this season. Yeah, yeah. OK, well, you know, we'll wait and see. Um Matteo Genduzzi went away with France. He was called mm. up to the senior squad. He didn't play, though, as far as I can tell. No, he didn't get on. But I think, obviously, a, a big moment for him. There was a great video of, I don't know if you saw it, of him after he'd been called up. How excited he was to be told by Emery he was going off with the senior squad. Oh, was this imagine- where he was asleep or something? Yeah, something like that. I'm, I'm, I, I'm not sure. It was just a, a video I saw of him in a car sort of relaying the story of how he'd been told. And he was absolutely overwhelmed but what imagines he'll have swanned into that squad into the the French national setup and walked around a bit like he owned the place because that's what he did at Arsenal that's the the personality he's sort of got and I'm sure he'll fit in a tree and although he didn't get on the pitch this time it feels like a a matter of time he he's had a very good start to the season and Unai Emery was glowing about him in a Q&A he did with the Arsenal website yeah yeah, so, well, you know, he's gone away. He's got that experience of becoming part of the squad without necessarily playing. You you look at some of the midfielders that France have and you think, well, it's only a matter of time. If he continues to perform at the level he's performing for Arsenal, it'll only be a matter of time before before he gets into the team. Um, I saw Granit Xhaka talking about having some Achilles problems. Yeah, I, I, think, I think I saw about a thigh problem as well so I'm not exactly sure I know that he is going to require a fitness test when he gets back mm. from uh, I, have, I have a quote here he says uh, oh, I've on. been suffering from Achilles tendon pain for a few weeks now I felt it during the game uh, it hurts now but it should be okay um, yeah I mean he came off 
um, during Switzerland's win over Gibraltar. Um, so, look, I guess it, 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 it's one of those where you have to wait and see. Um, you know, ongoing chronic Achilles pain uh, can be a bit uh, debilitating. And as we know, with Lauren Koscielny, it can turn into something a lot worse than that. So that's, uh, that's something I reckon they're going to have to manage. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've got seven games now between now and the next interlull in October. So plenty of football to be playing. Something tells me that after the North London derby, Arsenal fans, a lot of Arsenal fans might be able to make their peace with Granit Xhaka having a, a little bit of a rest to, to heal that Achilles. But yeah. we are going to need him. I think he's going to play plenty of football this season, almost irrespective of what we as fans may feel about that. And uh, I think there's still a very good chance he'll be captain, captaining us in a, a lot of games. So... Yeah, I, I think he'll. I think we need to manage that situation, but I expect him to play plenty of football too. Mm, okay, well we'll see. Uh, we'll get a fitness update later in the week because we are facing Watford uh, on Saturday. I might leave some um, discussion of that game for the Arscast on Friday, but obviously mm. we 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 get to see Danny Welbeck again, who has become a Watford player, and they have that. Uh, that new manager thing, is it just me or are we the club that that happens to more than any other? It feels like that, doesn't it? I don't know if it feels like that for all supporters of other clubs, but it definitely feels like that from an Arsenal perspective. Although what Watford have done by appointing their old manager has really confused me. I sort of find myself walking around asking what year it is and who's the president because <laughs> it's, it's like we're going to some sort of time warp situation. I mean, it's very Italian of them you know it's it's classic Pozzo stuff you you sit down one manager mm. and bring an old one back but uh yeah maybe I think you wrote this in your blog today maybe that will reduce the the height of the new manager bounce somewhat yeah I hope so I hope so because we do need to get back to to winning ways Unai Emery has been talking about our start to the season and uh you know how he how he's viewed it as as quite positive um, he, you know, references some of the players that we've lost. We're getting young players and giving giving them chances to do one more step with us, etc., etc. But I was interested to just hear what you uh, think about when he talks about. Um, he says, "I think we can continue being very offensive with a lot of important." Uh, offensive players. We also want to take the balance defensively, etc., etc. But I think the first four matches allowed us to show our first characteristic to be offensive. That seems a bit more definitive to me from Unai Emery in terms of, you know, we talk about a lot about uh, his philosophy and what way he wants to play and, and everything else. Um, and he has he has sort of talked, uh, you know, in general terms about it. But this seems a bit more specific um, you know, having been backed with uh, a £72 million Pepe in the transfer market, he wanted a winger. He got one of the hottest wingers in European football. You know, do you do you get the sense that there is maybe, if not pressure, but a, a kind of collective idea uh, between Emery, um, you know, Raul Sanyehi, Edu, all the football executive people, that there is a need for Arsenal to play attacking football? which, you know, for various reasons we weren't always able to do last season. Do you, I mean, do you think that it's not necessarily an edict, but this is what they've come up with themselves, that there has to be, you know, a bit more focus on, on the stuff that people really like, which is attacking exciting football? I think so. I mean, when I 
saw those quotes from Emery and watched that interview. He sounded a bit like a man who was sort of saying the right thing. I'm, I'm not necessarily sure that when I look at our our matches this season, I see what he says, you know, that we suddenly are this much more offensive team. Uh, certainly in terms of the personnel, I can buy it, but I'm not sure stylistically we've quite met that. But the fact that he's laying that out as, you know, something that he wants to be sort of measured against, to me suggests that there is uh, a shift in emphasis there. And whether that comes from, you know, Raul Sanyehi or whether it comes from Edu coming in board or whether it's a collective thing or, or even a Nuno Emery thing of, you know, we need mm. to be a more forceful attacking unit. Uh, I think it's definitely a good thing and we should be leaning into that strength. You know, when you look at our squad, the quality is top heavy. The, the front line is where we have our best players, really. So I sort of think it's necessity in part but also, I'd like to believe it's sort of philosophical too. Um, and I think in the next few weeks, we've got a number of games coming up where we should be able to make that attacking talent tell. You know, we've got a lot of games against teams who would be considered, you know, inferior, really. So we need to start winning games and we need to win them in some style, hopefully, as well. Yeah, I suppose the big challenge between now and the... the uh the next interlull is at the the end of September, where we face Manchester United at Old Trafford. Yeah. Um, but you know, Watford not taking anything for granted with Watford. But then we've got Frankfurt in the Europa League, Aston Villa at home, Nottingham Forest in the Carabao Cup at home. Then you've got Manchester United, Standard Liège at home in the Europa League, and Bournemouth. Um, at home in the Premier League. So it's a kind of run of games where you could start to build some momentum and it gives Emery, I think, a chance as well to really use some of the, those young players because, you know, Frankfurt away, Forest at home, Standard Liège in the Europa League. You know, I've said this before and I stand by it. I really, really want to see us um, give young players a chance to perform in the Europa League because first and foremost I think Premier League is is our bread and butter this season it's got to be our focus has got to be getting back into the top four um, and if we can do that without knackering the players in the group stages of the of the Europa League you know I, I think you can take a hit or two in the Europa League group stage you know you can draw a game or lose a game and still f finish um top of the group reasonably confidently given the standard of players that we've got so i'd rather i'd rather uh, have them given that chance uh, and keep those players um keep the main guys uh, our our senior guys if you like fit for the premier league yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, Eintracht Frankfurt are a good example of a, a decent team in the Europa League. They reached the semi-finals last season, albeit uh, with two forward players who've since moved on. Two stars, really, for them. But, you, you know, so we could go there with a, a weakened team or a heavily rotated team and potentially lose points. But we can survive that in the group stage. That is the thing. That is the value of the group stage. If we win our home matches uh, and pick up something away somewhere, we'll probably be all right to get through. So mm. I think we can afford to to rotate quite heavily. The squad's a little bit lighter now in terms of who we've let go. Yeah. Um, so it'll be interesting picking that 11 and seeing, you know, do, are there a couple of senior players who are asked to travel or are asked to be part of it? If there are, you don't want to see more than... A handful, and you don't want to see the same handful every time. I think you want to rotate those guys too. Um, but yeah, I, I think definitely the likes of Nelson, Smith Rowe, you know, uh, Willock, 
Willock certainly, uh, maybe Martinelli, Chambers. You know, there are plenty of players who who want those minutes and who need those minutes. So. I think, yeah. I mean, another thing to consider is, uh, you know, we're looking at three players coming back from injury as well: Hector Bellerin, yeah. Rob Holding, Kieran Tierney, who are going to need some playing time to get them up to the the pace of the Premier League. Mm. And it strikes me that these games are a really good way of reintroducing them to first-team football. Well, I think, yeah, from everything I hear, Rob Holding is extremely close at this point. And I think Frank Furt, there's every chance that he plays that game. Um, and, and that could be the story of this interlow, really, in terms of how those three players come back and when they come back. Because, you know, they'll have had a couple of weeks training at Colney, getting closer and closer to first-team action. And we do have cup games in the next couple of months. You mentioned the Carabao Cup as well. They could be a vital sort of training ground almost for those players as they get closer to Premier League level. And I think they'll make a massive difference, particularly the full-backs. I think the centre-back situation maybe is a little bit assuaged by the fact we've brought Louise in. We have got two experienced guys in there, whatever you may think of their quality. But at full-back... We really need Bellerin and Tierney, and I think they will improve us dramatically. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, you know, maybe that's the benefit of this little spell of games, which uh, will allow Emery to, you know, to use these players, get them closer to match fitness. Then there's another two-week break. You know, again, you're sort of um, maybe uh, getting them more physically ready on the training ground and everything else. So we'll we'll wait and see what he does. Um, anything else before we go on to part two and we answer some questions from our our wonderful listeners? I'm just trying to think. I don't if there think is there's anything, anything else. else. Nothing. I mean, nothing sticks out. No, no. I mean, it is worth watching that Uno Emery Q and A on on the official site. Is the only thing I'd say. You know, we don't hear masses from him. And when we do, it's answers and to questions and press conference that aren't always the clearest. And this is about as clear as I've ever heard him be. Uh, it is helpfully subtitled as well by the, the dot-com guys. So that is worth a watch just to sort of try and get a bit more perspective. Oh, on it's the in way Spanish, is. is it? No, 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 it's in English, but he still, still requires those subtitles. Of course. Uh, what's quite funny is that the subtitles don't always tally with what he's saying. Like, sometimes they'll just write something that makes sense underneath instead of what he actually said, which is is good. I mean, you know, they're doing the right thing. But uh, I, I say this with a lot of sympathy. Like, his English, his vocabulary is, like, fantastic. You know, he's using words that I wouldn't get close to in a foreign language. But it, it is about as... Uh, as clear and communicative as I've seen, Emery. So it's worth watching from from that point of view. Okay. But, uh, yeah, apart from that, I don't think so. I mean, it's been the interlal. I'm English. I'm an England fan. There is no Arsenal involvement at all in the England senior squad, um, which is, you know, a little bit unusual, something that Per touched on uh, when I saw him yesterday. That's something they're looking to correct and amend, but... I don't think, yeah, I think I think that's it. I mean, I think we're all just waiting for Sunday, aren't we? And Danny yeah. Welbeck's 30-yard screamer into the top corner. <laughs> what a way to end part one of this, <laughs> uh, this Arscast Extra. Right, we'll take a break and we'll be right back with your questions and more after this. Hey. 
Hey y'all, it's Matt Marr here, aka Maddie, and Poodle, aka Jake Anthony, and we host the podcast 90 Day Gays. We sure do, and Poodle, I'm excited because Christmas is here. Aren't you excited? With Best Christmas Ever on AMC Plus, every day feels like it's Christmas morning. Oh, wow. They got all my favorites. The year without a Santa Claus. You know, I've always felt a kinship to Heatmiser. He was just misunderstood. Plus, you get a stocking stuffed with highly acclaimed AMC series like The Walking Dead and Mad Men, new series like Gangs of London and The Walking Dead World Beyond. And y'all, AMC Plus is available on all your devices. So celebrate the best Christmas ever anytime, anywhere. AMC Plus is the gift that keeps on giving all year long. Sign up today at amcplus.com. AMC Plus, only the good stuff. This holiday season, treat yourself. Treat yourself to candy. Celebrate the holiday season with the Holiday Crush. They've sprinkled candy with a holiday theme and fun-packed challenges every week for five whole weeks, finishing on January 4th. The more challenges you complete, the better your chances of unwrapping delicious rewards. So, are you ready to crush the holidays? Play the Holiday Crush now. Download it from the App Store, Google Play, or Windows Store for free. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to the Arscast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at GunnarBlog and at Arsblog. Also on the Arsblog Facebook page and also on the Arsblog Discord server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon, which you can become at patreon.com forward slash the Arsblog. Uh, I'm going to ask you a question first. It comes from Facebook and it just touches on something you, you mentioned towards the end of part one. It's from Russ Morgan. And he says, I know you probably aren't personally bothered. I guess this is directed to me because I'm an Irishman. Uh, but Arsenal do not have a single player in the England first team squad. Is this a concern or just a sign of the times? And as the Englishman, I will let you answer this. <laughs> uh I don't. Is it a concern? I mean, there are sort of two elements to it. The first is that, like, I do watch the England games, and my interest in them is significantly increased if there is some Arsenal involvement. I mean, that's what gets me through international tournaments. Sometimes the hope mm. that Danny Welbeck's going to come on for four minutes at the end. Uh, I don't even have that anymore. Um, and I think it is a bit of a point of pride for a club, you know, to to have players in any international team, but particularly the one that's sort of the, the nation of the league that you play in. Uh, I, I also think that, you know, when you look at the players who are in there, a lot of them have come out of the academies of some of our rivals, some of our competitors. Seeing an England squad full of players from Spurs, Chelsea, United, and no Arsenal players, it does rankle a bit. So I would like to see it mm. I believe Per Mertzacker in his interview with Arsblog News uh, talks about this so it's worth checking out he talks about the need for potentially a new British core after that failed British core of, of the Arsene Wenger era yeah um, I, I, it is a bit of a worry but I, I'm very optimistic about it in terms of where I think we'll be in I don't know three or four years or even maybe less time than that. Yeah. When you look at people like Eddie and Ketia and uh, Reese Nelson, who are shining for the under twenty ones, Aidan Zlimate Niles, who's played plenty of under twenty ones football too, Callum Chambers and Rob Holding uh, were a mainstay of the under twenty one team for a long time. Obviously, they're in that sort of awkward liminal space now, where they're too old for that, really, but not quite there for the senior level. But they could close that gap. I think it's something that we are addressing, and there is a. There is a new British core, if you want yeah. to use that phrase, emerging. 
Is that your washing machine in the background doing the spin is cycle? Is that my washing machine? No, I think it's a kettle. Oh, but okay. Because there's n- there's no door uh, between <laughs> this room and that room. There's like a curtain. Yeah, all room. right. So I think that's my wife trying to use a kettle very subtly you and can, you fa- can't. failing. You can't make a, a quiet she kettle, so no. that's fine. Um, okay. But I, I think, you know, just touching on, on that, you know, from my very objective perspective, is yeah. that, you know, if Arsenal have got some uh, English players in the England team, it means probably that the level of player we're producing from our academy is good enough, you know, to make that to make that level and make that step up to, mm-hmm. to the England national team. So, you know, I'd like to see it uh, as well because, um, you know, just on a very purely selfish level, it means that if there are, you know, top English players, chances are we haven't bought them. You know, we haven't gone out and spent... X amount of money on, on, you know, we haven't done 80 million on Harry Maguire, for example, just mm-hmm. leaving a gap there for people to, to laugh at that um, in their own good time. It, it, it would mean that we are producing players of a level good enough to play for England from our academy, and that can only be a positive thing uh, for the club. Yeah, look, we have to have a number of homegrown players in our squad. That's Premier League regulations. That's UEFA regulations. You want them to be as good as they can possibly be. Mm. Uh, And if they're international footballers, so much the better. I do think, obviously, playing for the England international team brings with it a level of scrutiny and a level of criticism at times that isn't always helpful. But I think... That is shifting somewhat, and I think this England team are received about as positively as as any have been in my in my living memory. So, okay, uh, yeah, I think we'll have some players in there before long, though. Honestly, I really do. Cool. Uh, let's have this question. It's from Sunny Cool on the Discord, and Sunny says, "I'm worried about Torreira's future at the club. I don't think Emery uses him correctly, and he gets frustrated. He was supposed to be our saviour DM, a position he smashed at the World Cup." but it's never happened. Do you still see him playing a major role this season? Um, it's an interesting question. I, myself and Tayo touched on this last week in the in the Arscast Extra that we mm. did in your absence, and, and he pointed to a piece that Amy did for The Athletic about how the Arsenal executives basically sat down with Unai Emery and, and told him, no, not in Zonzi, it's going to be Torreira. Mm. Um, and I worry a little bit that that when a manager has, if not necessarily a preconceived notion of a player, but but a a fairly um, defined picture of what he wants from a player in a certain position, and you give him a player who's sort of at odds with that, I wonder can can it become more difficult for that player to convince the manager that he's the right guy for that position, right? So that's yeah. that's kind of what I think about about the Torreira thing so far. I mean, we have one here as well from the uh, from Twitter from Abhishek Mendvikar, who's at Abby underscore Gunner, and he says, "Why are we hell bent on doing a Kante on Torreira? Wouldn't Willock be better in that role, etc., cetera, etc.?" Cetera? So you know, this idea that we're playing him out of position to play somebody the manager prefers. Um, because of you know, in Emery's case, it might it might simply be that you know Xhaka in that deep lying role fits what he thinks a player in that position should look like. I think 
you might be onto something there. I mean, I've tried to do a bit of digging around this because I do find it so interesting that Torreira doesn't quite seem to fit Unai Emery's plan. And I think that the physical type is a big part of that. Uh, you know, the, the Kante comparison comes out a lot. And I think it's because Torreira is a defensively-minded midfielder who is quite short. Uh, but I think their physical profiles are really different. And I think sometimes we sort of assume they're the same. But from what I understand, in terms of his his performance numbers and his physical numbers, Torreira is not close to the athleticism of someone like mm. Akante. Um, and I think for Emery, maybe that is a bit of a problem. I think maybe height is an issue, but I think it goes beyond that in Torreira's case. And I really like him. Every time I see him play, I think this is someone who uses the ball very intelligently, crucially who wins it very intelligently. And we don't have a lot of that in our squad. You know, he's a guy who makes smart tackles and good technical tackles. Um, but for some reason, Emery doesn't quite see it fitting. And when he does use him, tends to be more on the sort of right-hand side of a diamond, doesn't it? Or in a slightly more advanced role than we would expect. It's like he feels more comfortable with him uh, almost in higher areas of the field than we anticipated Torreira playing. I have some concerns about it, just because... You remember those Torreira AC Milan stories? Yeah. They ultimately came to nothing, but you wonder if that came in part from the players' side or because because side. maybe he doesn't feel like the coach has the kind of faith in him that yeah. that he wants. Yeah, I, I think so. And you know, maybe he's not playing, you know, all the big games that he wants to play. I think it's going to be a fascinating one to watch because Genduzzi is sort of Emery's anointed man in the centre of midfield. Granite Xhaka, I think is the guy you might name as captain, who he clearly is a quite a trusted lieutenant of his. And that only leaves so much space. Danny Ceballos has come from Real and wants playing time. That only leaves so much opportunity. But from the outside, looking at Torreira, I see a player who fits the mould of what we need and what we should be doing and who's got a big potential and a big mm. upside. Uh, I'd rather be investing playing time in Torreira than, than Shaka at this sure. point. Sure, um, me, me too. I mean, we have to, you know, give Emery um, his dues in that he did start him in the North London derby, mm. if not necessarily in the kind of position that, that everyone would have liked. And, you know, I, I think Torreira struggled a little bit in that game. Um, you know, I, I, I do have this underlying worry about if not necessarily his physicality because you don't have to be massive to to um to be effective in the premier league but it just maybe his his overall fitness and stamina yeah that's just a, a little nagging worry that i have about him that it always seems to be something of an issue and and we can talk about you know the reasons why and there might be very good reasons for it you know last season he came back um from the world cup he came back late didn't get a full preseason he didn't get a winter break which he's used to from playing in in italy and in the second half of the season he felt a little bit um you know he never quite got to the heights that he did in in the first part. This summer, again, he's been away on international duty. He's come back late, hasn't had a full preseason. So, you know, maybe the next two or three months for Lucas Torreira are, are going to be something of, if not a challenge, but a chance for him or an opportunity for him to really prove to, to Emery with his performances that he should be absolutely one of the first names on the team sheet. I, I'd love to see him get the amount of playing time to to do that, you know? Like you, I, I would rather see us try and develop Torreira than 
um, see more of, of Xhaka because, you know, we've seen three seasons of Xhaka. We know what he can do. We know what he can do well. We know what he doesn't do well. And, you know, we're at a point, many of us with him, where, you know, you, you would question his um, his place as an automatic first team pick because of some of the flaws in his game, right? Um, so I think it is a chance for Torreira, but, you know, we've got to see the performances. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's a problem. Physicality is maybe not always the right word, but uh, athleticism, I think, is a bit of an issue for Torreira. And how many games have you seen him play where it feels like after the 60th minute, he slightly drops away in intensity and slightly fades? Mm. And often, often, I think we're encouraged by what we see from him because we see him coming on as a substitute and he has a very immediate impact in the final half an hour or final 20 minutes of a game. Um, but whether he could sustain that across 90 minutes, I think is another question. You know, you compare him to someone like Kante, Kante's a, a freak, you know, he's like a marathon runner in there. Um, and uh, Torreira, I don't think, is capable of matching that. And Emery, you know, he is quite focused on those sort of measurements for a route of play. Mm. So, yeah, it, it's going to be a really interesting one to watch this season because I, uh, I think at the age Torreira is, he's going to want to play regularly and in Serie A he was able to because you know it's a slightly less intense league and the pace isn't quite what it is in the Premier League and and he flourished there but you know and, and I don't think it's coincidence that we saw stories this summer potentially about him going mm. back there but I, I would like to think that uh, he'll get the chance to play and, and certainly if he doesn't start in the Watford game that Europa League op- will provide an opportunity to do that and even when we're rotating heavily, you know, we're talking about playing weakened teams. There's still lots of incentive for the guys who play those games. You know, they they can still, yeah, they'll still be motivated to perform, right? Because everyone wants to play those Premier League matches. Yeah, for sure. Okay, here's a question from Scott Drayton, who's at Scott Drayton on Twitter. He says, "Is the extremely high turnover in our squad over the last few years worrying, or something to be happy about?" I think personally, the latter. Uh, I think it's great. <laughs> I think it is uh, a victory of a mm. sorts for the new executive team. They've been more efficient in terms of moving people on. Uh, they've shed that wage bill dramatically, as we said in part one, and they have you know, opened up space in the squad for new signings and academy talent. Mm. I think it is generally a, a good thing. You? Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a good thing. You know, if you're looking to do better than you did previously, you can't continue with all the same players, right? Um, so, yeah, I think you know the level of turnover of players is really quite something, isn't it? When you when you think about um, you know who's left, even from from last season. Ospina, I know he wasn't really part of the squad. El Nenny, Licksteiner, Mkhitaryan, Iwobi, Koscielny, Monreal, Welbeck, Czech, Ramsey. And if you go back to the start of the 2017-18 season, you know, you're, you're also talking about Sanchez, Walcott, Giroud, Coquelin, Lucas Perez, Jack Wilshire, Santi Cazorla, Per Mertesacker, Oxlade-Chamberlain, Gabriel, Debushi, Kieran Gibbs. You know, there's been a lot of churn. Um... And I think at some point we have to try and, if not slow that down, introduce a measure of um, consistency 
into the squad. Like if a player isn't performing and if we need to upgrade in a position, you know, you do it. But I also think a, a certain amount of consistency is is important as well. But, you know, it suggests a time of change. It suggests a time of um, refurbishment, rebirth, refreshing, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, and we have been if not sort of stuck in a rut, we have been in a a kind of uh, chugging along, if you like, without really looking like we're going to make anything better. And, you know, you look at all these changes and you look at the changes that have happened this summer and the investment in the squad this summer, you know, you you have to give the club credit for for trying to make things better and trying to make things different um and and not necessarily sticking with players for five or six years but rather give them two or three years and if they're not doing it then you make a decision on them yeah and we've also undergone a sort of generational change in terms of the management of the club and inevitably that's going to bring with it a degree of churn in the playing staff but ultimately it comes down to what would we be holding on to you know holding on something that we a squad that we largely felt was insufficient so you know change is a good thing and I think there's a bit of a ruthlessness maybe about the way that we are managing this squad now you know someone like El Nenny gets shipped out Mkhitaryan mm. gets shipped out uh, it couldn't have been made clearer to someone like Skodra Mustafi that he was surplus to requirements um, it's not necessarily nice but maybe we were a bit too nice in the past and mm. I, I think it's definitely a step in the right direction yeah. um, this question is from Klaus Faust on the Discord and Klaus Faust says it seems fitting almost that Nacho Monreal's departure gets largely lost amid the derby discussion Ten years from now, what will his legacy be at Arsenal? Will he be remembered among the most important squad members of the 2010s or will be lost in time, in part due to his quiet nature? It's a good question. I think he'll be remembered very fondly. I think he'll be remembered as a player who contributed quite a lot, you know, even during a period when the team wasn't quite at the level that everyone wanted. You know, um, Arsenal fans have not been slow to express their frustration at the way things uh, have been going for the team and also uh, for individuals. But you're kind of hard-pressed to find anyone who doesn't um, who doesn't have good things to say about Nacho Monreal. Um, so, you know, he, he scored a really important goal, didn't he, on the way to the 2017 FA Cup final. I think he scored against Manchester City in the in the semi final. A really big, big goal. Mm. You know, he 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 was professional. He always did his best. He was a left back. He was a wing back. He was a centre half for us. Um, I think we can look at him as a player who came in and perhaps exceeded people's expectations. And you know, in in an era where players that frustrate us are often, it's not necessarily that they're they're just bad players it's that they're they're inconsistent or that they have certain issues with their games which manifest themselves at, at the wrong moments far too often you know the consistency that Monreal displayed I think it, it will be remembered uh, very well you know you never never really got anything less than 7 out of 10 from him you could easily get 8 or 9 so you know I, he was a quiet guy he was not necessarily uh, one of the you know, someone people would consider a star of the team, but I, I think he, I think he's been a very, very good player for us, and I hope he has a great time at Real Sociedad. Yeah, I mean, 
it's a bit reductive to draw comparisons, but I saw, I think I think of him in similar terms to I do Bakary Sanya, yeah, you know, someone yeah. who came in was a very good signing for the money we paid. I think it was about seven million in each case, and sort of exceeded expectations really, and developed into a really solid, reliable guy without ever necessarily being the star of the team. <clears throat> and yeah. uh, I, I am a bit sad to see him go. I must be honest. I you know if you asked me, you've got a big game tomorrow you've got to start Kalasnach or Monreal's left back in a four I, I would go for Monreal but I can see you know why they've they've chosen to keep Kalasnach in terms of his you know his potential or the potential money you might get from him down the line uh, I, I get it but mm. from a playing point of view I, I'm not over the moon about it but I wish him all the best in Spain and I think yeah. he will be really fondly remembered yeah. yeah I think you're right the Sanya comparison is quite a good one isn't it you know I know mm. that, that for some people he he blotted his copybook by moving to to Manchester City but he did so at the end of his contract he was a you know a thorough professional for us and a really really good player you know during a period where the team was not quite as as um, as good as it should have been defensively he was one of our our stalwarts in, in that regard okay here is a question which touches briefly on the game against Watford on on Saturday, and Steve Edelston, who's at Edelston underscore Steve on Twitter, says, should we look to play Sabias or Ozil in the number 10 role against Watford rather than the f- the three flat midfielders that we deployed against Spurs? Um, I think that you can play Sabias without playing him as a, a, a number 10 per se. I think that you can have him as a I suppose what you would call a, a number eight, but in, a, in moving into advanced areas. I think that's sort of the biggest issue for us at the moment is connecting that midfield with the attack. And I think that uh, away from home, Sabios is maybe a slightly better bet to do that than Ozil. I mean, granted, he had a, a, a tricky time in, in one of our away fixtures this season. Uh, but I think, yeah, I think I'd go Sabios. What about you? I'm not sure. I, you know, again, I'm not sure. I throw in Mesut Ozil uh, for his first yeah. appearance of the season away from home. Um, uh, you know, I don't think we need to have this um, discussion or debate about what that says about Ozil or, or anything else. Um, you know, I would like to see us play with one of those players, though. You know, if we are going to deploy that front three, and I think we probably will, we did look better against Spurs when we had a player who could help connect things um, so yeah you know it, in the absence of Mkhitaryan who was a potential candidate for that Sabayos and Ozil are the two the two main guys I just would have a feeling that Emery if he was making that decision would think that perhaps the the usefulness and the the energy of Sabayos might suit that fixture better than the more the more languid style of, of Mesut Ozil. Yeah, I think I agree with that. And I also think just tactically, maybe Sabayos suits that shape a little bit more because he can sort of start from a deeper position but uh, get forward from there. Whereas if you go with Ozil, that's yeah. a, real, a real number 10 you're playing and you end up with almost a front four, which might be uh, a bit much away from home. Um, so yeah, I, I think Sabas. There was a really nice pass from Sabas. I think during the international break for Spain in their first fixture. I don't know if you saw it, but I didn't. Uh, I saw people talking about it though, but I, I wasn't yeah, paying lovely, that much attention. 
No, I don't blame you. Uh, lovely <laughs> little pass to the outside of his foot. I think he picked. He also picked up an assist in that game. So he, he did well for Spain uh, in that first international fixture. And if his confidence is up, I think let's give him a go. He, you know, he was really outstanding against Burnley, uh, and we've not quite seen that since. But it would be good to see a bit more of him. So mm. he would be my pick out of those two. Okie dokie. Uh, let's have this one. It's from Ratwan Postwala on Twitter. Uh, Ratan, sorry, not Ratwan. And Ratan says, given that we've got rid of our of most of our senior wingers, which is not necessarily a bad thing, do you think it's likely we'll see Ainsley Maitland-Niles and Kalasinac as regulars in those positions, especially as subs? I can see Emery bringing them on regularly, especially Kalasinac on the left. Um... So we're making the assumption that, that, that Tierney and Bellerin are fit. We're playing in a back so. four. We're using a front three. Are we going to throw on Ainsley, Maitland-Niles or Kolasinac? Uh, maybe in a game where we're, we're, if not necessarily hanging on, but we're ahead. Potentially you could see, lead. yeah, protecting a lead. You could maybe see some logic in that. If you're looking for goals, I'm not sure that that would be something I I would expect him to do on a on a regular basis. Yeah, I mean, Kalasnach on the left wing is something that gets talked about a lot, but I, I kind of feel that it it's quite ill suited to him. I know that he's a good attacking fullback or wing back, but I think he's good at that precisely because he's playing from that deeper position and he's able to sort of make those overlapping runs. I think, Mm. you know, receiving the ball with his back to goal sometimes as a winger, having to sort of turn inside or create the space for himself on the ball seems to me like a bit of a dead end, a bit of a disaster. So, yeah, if you're playing him there to augment a fullback and offer you some protection and see out a win... I can see that happening as a sub. It's something Arsene Wenger used to do time to time, is bring on players who are principally fullbacks as as wingers or wide midfielders. But I don't see it becoming a regular thing. Ainsley Maitland-Niles, I think, would be a lot more comfortable in that position. We've seen him do well there in the past as a right winger. Um, but it does seem to me that right right fullback is his position this season and with Hector Bellerin coming back from that big injury I think he's still going to get plenty of game time there I think they're going to look to rotate and, and protect Bellerin a little bit because he has been overplayed in the past so I think their focus will still principally be on, mm. on the fullback positions yeah I think so too um, here's one from uh, the discord from Lee Sadler who says good morning fellas we have a young academy player uh, following Balagoon, who is another one of those guys who's too good for youth football. Uh, he's, he reels off some stats here, which, if they're right, uh, are amazing. 44 goals and 10 assists in 58 appearances for the under-18 and under-23s combined last season. I think, did, could, did he play 58 games? I'm not sure about that. But, but certainly he's a, a young player who's catching the eye. He says, how do we try to develop this talent into a real star and not let him become another Afobi slash Akpom who showed the same kind of promise? Is it too early to loan him? mainly maybe for uh, six months of the season how old is he 18 years old uh, July 2001 is his birthday Christ um, now I feel old holy shit <laughs> one of those post-millennium children mm. uh, listen I, he's definitely catching the eye I mean I've seen some great clips of him and he always seems to be finding the score sheets in the academy teams and um, a really, really promising player. 
I think at that age, 18 years old, I don't think there's a massive rush to get him out on loan. I mean, look, I, I think we need to use the loan market more smartly. And I think what we've done with Eddie and Ketia already looks like a really smart move. I think he's got three goals already for Leeds United. He got a couple for the under-21s the other night. He's having a really strong season and I mm. think is almost guaranteed to come back to Arsenal. A more experienced, more valuable player. I think almost irrespective of whether or not he makes it at Arsenal, we are turning him into an asset, turning him into someone who's worth quite a lot of money. Mm. I think that's got to be part of our thinking too. Balogun uh, is sort of the main man, really, in the academy team at present. And I think that's an okay place for him to be. Um, I think we're probably looking at next season, maybe for a loan move for him. Uh, yeah, I, I don't, I'm not in a massive rush. I think, you know, that role that he's got uh, is sort of okay at 18. He won't be 19 mm. until next summer. And I think then you look at how do we get this guy some first team football? What about you? Well, yeah, I mean, I would tend to agree with that. I, I guess it depends, you know, what he shows in the, you know, in the period between now and the transfer window opening, that if it becomes apparent that, you know, under 23 football is just not good enough for him or not challenging enough for him in order for him to develop, then, yeah, why not use... Um, why not use the loan market to, to give him some playing time? Um, but yeah, you know, he's only 18, so... Uh, I mean, he's not going to get that playing time with the first team, I would say, this season. There's just too many mm. attacking players potentially ahead of him in that queue. You know, you look at Martinelli or or Nelson and players like that. I, yeah, I just but think... actually, you know, if you think about... Um, if you think about... If we're going to play, let's say, a front three mm. in the Europa League or in the Carabao Cup... Right, and we're 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 not going to use Lacazette or Aubameyang, given that you know we we need them for the Premier League. Who who do you play as your striker? I know Tyrese John Jules is there, and they think very highly of him. Also, yeah. so there is potentially room for Balagoon to play, you know, either off the bench or even start a game. Um, because otherwise, you know, if Enkedia hadn't gone on loan, you'd be saying those games are his. Those are his games. But in the absence, I mean, it depends what they think um, exactly what they're going to do with Martinelli. Like, is he a wide forward or a centre forward? You know, that might change the That's picking order a little a bit. Yeah. yeah. I mean, John Jules is the one who I thought, you know, probably will make that step. He got the new contract in the summer. He's only actually about four or five months older than Balogun, but I think mm. he's further ahead in his development, having sort of already been through a, a campaign with the under-23s. Um uh, you know, I think he's probably ahead in the queue, but you might you're, you might be right. Maybe Balogun will get a se- bit of senior involvement. I think it's probably likelier to get in that squad for the Carabao Cup, mm. maybe than the Europa League. Yeah. Um, but listen, a lot will depend on things that we'll never see. A lot will depend on things like if he's asked to join up for training with the first team, how he fares in that environment. You know, mm. th- that will inform these decisions. And we spoke about Permer Saka in part one. This is where he has to come into his own, really. He has to work with Ben Napper, who's the loan manager, and and make a decision on what's best for Balogun's development. And let me tell you, Balogun will be pushing for things too. I think players at that age are increasingly aware of the different pathways that there are to first-team football, how important it is that they get out there. I think what's happened with Jaden Sancho and Xavier Michi and players like that leaving the club has created a bit of 
jeopardy, but in a healthy way, a bit of tension about, you know, I want to play. I don't want to be stuck in youth football. Am I going to go on loan? Am I going to go permanently? Are you going to give me an opportunity in the first team? And those decisions sort of rest with Pear, really. And yeah. let's hope he makes the right one. Yeah, I mean, that's true. That's true. I mean, I think there is more and more focus on you know, how you develop your best young players. You don't just let them play under 23 football until a, until a, you know, a space opens up in the first team, if it ever does. And also I think the increasing awareness that by giving players, young players, first team football elsewhere, you raise their profile, you raise their asset value. And those are the realities of, of how you um, run a football academy these days mm-hmm. at a top level club, that that it can be something that produces you um, a not insignificant amount of money. So, uh, yeah, you know, the more the players are on top of this themselves, you know, the more the club have to work to make these things Absolutely. happen for them. Absolutely. Um have you got time for a, a stupid question? Well, let me let me just give you a non-stupid question before okay. we do the stupid question. Okay. Okay. Um, we've got a couple here. Uh, one from oh god at Pradeep Kachala on Twitter. Who's at Guru Twitter? No, he's at Pradeep Kachala. Um, what part are you most looking forward to reading in Arsene's upcoming book? If people don't know about this, Arsene Wenger talked about uh, how he is going to. Um, uh, release a book and there was one on the discord as well if i can find it here uh, it comes from hubber j who says if the rumors are to be believed arson is currently writing his autobiography what one story from his time at arsenal do you want to be included yeah i think we've had this before and i think i feel like we we maybe settled on sort of the summer of 2011 mm. Uh, you know, when Seska Nasri departed and there was a lot going on there. I'm just trying to think of things beyond that. Well, I, you I, know, I think, I think you know, um, the departure would certainly be something that I'd be really interested in Wenger's perspective on. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. how exactly it happened, you know, what way it went down um, and all that. That would certainly be a really interesting one also. That's a really good point. And I also would just be interested in his uh, perspective with a bit of perspective and a bit more time mm. about those last few years at Arsenal. And uh, there are a lot of key moments. I mean, I'd love to hear his account of that Wigan semi-final that we mentioned. You know, I'd, l- I'd love to hear his honest opinion of how what that did to him and how close he came to leaving maybe after the 2014 FA Cup final yeah. or maybe even the 2017 one. You know, it, it, it felt like it was genuinely in the balance at points there and it would I'd love to know exactly what the process was that led to him staying on. Um, I, yeah, I, there's a, I mean, there are so many things. I mean, the fact that Ron Van Persie recently gave his account of how he came to leave Arsenal... Uh, I would enjoy seeing that maybe publicly uh, rebuffed or refuted by Arsene Wenger if, in his autobiography. If if it, it if it is rebuffable, which I exactly. guess it kind of is, but you know, yeah, I mean, yeah. who knows? But I'd love to see Arsene's version. Let's just say to to present an alternative. Mm. Um, I, I think as well, you know, I'd love to hear it really in depth about what. You know, what the thinking was when we were moving to the Emirates Stadium and the financial restrictions that were going to be placed on on him, but some of the decisions that he made during that period, you know, um, Vieira 
okay, you've got a talent like Fabregas, but, you know, were Vieira and Fabregas completely incompatible? You know, mm. uh, w- what was the decision-making there? What was the decision-making behind, you know, Gilberto Silva making William Gallas captain? Why did you do that? Why did you let Gilberto go, you know, in in the way that it happened, you know, in a disappointing way? Um, you know, some of those things, some of those issues that we we can't seem to get our heads around or we can't find a rational explanation for, you know, even even the Ashley Cole situation. How much does he blame the agent and Mourinho for what went on there? Um, does he does he think that Arsenal could have done more to have kept Ashley Cole at that time? You know, some insights into those key things because, you know, the, they were moments which, you know, in a, in a way you could look back on as as just chipping away at something that was really strong. You know, Cole left, Vieira left, Gilberto left, Gallas was brought in and made captain. We had this focus on young players. You know, this, um, what was the, not quite the socialist model, if you like, but but sort of this equitable wage structure that we had. So nobody was the big star when you were bringing through all these young players. You know, would he do it differently? You know, did he go too far towards youth and not have enough experience? Um, there's loads, isn't there, you know, that you, you could get a lot of insight into. Yeah, and I also think I would just be interested in small nuggets of detail, you know, things from the training ground that we haven't necessarily heard before, explanations of why certain enigmatic players flourished and others didn't. I mean, it'd be fascinating mm. to hear what Arsene Wenger, for example, would write about the Meza Ozil contract decision. I would love to know mm. what his take on that was, you know, that huge salary. It feels so against his principles to to put a player on that wage above everybody else in the squad. Um, I'd be interested to know what he thinks about that and what he thinks about the, the fallout from that. Mm. Um, I'd love to know, you know... Uh, Players like Arshavin, Javinho, you know, the players who are, uh, Wenger clearly believed in their talent, but it didn't work out for whatever mm. reason. His understanding of why why that was or why that came to be. I mean, look, the whole thing, what we're saying, would be fascinating cover to cover. Oh, yeah. Um, and I, I really hope, you know, I saw the, the, the interview where he said he's working on it in, in French, and I, I hope he is working on it. I hope it's not something that's, you know, too far away, because I would be fascinated there's no one whose book I'd rather read than yeah Arsenal. yeah for sure and then you know little things like Park Chu Young and yeah you know, that's the, a great the, one the, the, the you know the transfer transfers that he maybe didn't go through with that he looks back on and thinks oh okay shit should have done that you know shouldn't have maybe been quite as cautious um, you know, because there was that there was that Dick Law stuff during the summer, wasn't there? That Charles Watts did for yeah. for goal. That was great. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, it was very interesting. But you know, it felt a bit like, well, Dick Law. Um, if you believed everything that he said, you know, um, yeah, I think it, I think it was very. Of course, it's one sided. Of course, it is. It's his version of events. But I do wonder if it was. Um, Slightly whitewashed in a way, you know? So, mm, of course, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, you're obviously going to present the best explanation. Why didn't you do this very obvious thing? Well, no, no, it's not our fault. It was other things and circumstances. And, you know, 
you know, it's easy to point the finger somewhere else rather than necessarily accept responsibility. And I'm not saying that what Dick Law said was wrong or lies or anything like that, but I just think it's human nature to sort of to give that best account of things. So, yeah, it'll, it'll be a very interesting book, uh, and I'm, I'm looking forward to it. No idea on the time schedule or anything like that, but uh, well, it'll be a whopper. The other, th- the other thing to say about Arsene is that, uh, you know, I remember some of the interviews he's done in French in the past, which have been on issues outside of football. Mm. We've heard him speak about things outside of football uh, in press conferences. And, you know, obviously that will be the thrust of his book, but I, he's just a fascinating guy to mm. listen to. And with the freedom to do that uh, on his own terms, it's uh, a really exciting prospect. Yeah, so, you, yeah. you think about the, the one that he did with uh, L'Equipe, um, which yeah, was, that's the one I was thinking of. Which yeah. was amazing, yeah. Okay, well, we'll, uh, we'll all look forward to that. Right, let's, um, let's finish it off with a silly one then. Okay, so this is from the Discord channel, um, which is normally the home of, you know, intelligent football discussion. But uh, Troy the Gooner says, Since it's the Interlal, can you solve a disagreement between my wife and I? The other day, she stepped on an almond, lost her balance and fell over. I maintain she tripped, but she insists she fell off the almond. (laughs) So... I guess my question is this. Can you fall off an almond? I don't know that you can fall off an almond because it would not really support your weight, would it? I mean, if you stood on an almond, it'd just crush under your foot. So I think it's more... So you'd be falling through an almond at that point? Yes. Yeah. I mean, if it was a coconut, you could definitely fall off a coconut because it's big enough to support your weight. Not easy to stand on. But if you're thinking about a nut that you could fall off, mm. yes. it needs to be in that sort of size. Yeah, you know, we or, don't know how small Troy's wife is. L- let's just say that. That's true. Or how big the almond was. It could have been a massive almond. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the big ones. One of the ones they milk. You know what I mean? Yeah. Squeeze all the milk. I out don't. Of it. I'm not sure. I like nut milk. I don't like. No? Just no. It doesn't like. Um. I just know almond milk and yeah no not for cashew me cashew milk you can milk oh really yeah, yeah. I don't it's just, uh, just something I don't know it's like milking beetles or something I don't but isn't it less weird than milk I mean I'm you know I I drink cow's milk but is it not less weird than milking a cow in a way um like if I said to you I'm going to give you a nut and you're going to suck the milk out of it or I'm going to give you a cow's udder and you're going to suck the milk out of that. Yeah, I, I guess. Having, if I was unfamiliar with both those concepts, yeah, yeah. I would say, A, where's the milk in the nut, though? I mean, you know, I don't think you suck it out. I mean, I have to be honest, I don't, don't know how they make nut milk. I guess they just <laughs> crush the nuts until until they get whatever nut jism comes out of it. I guess so. I guess so. I think you get the nuts really excited, and then <laughs> and then you give. Them I a, don't know. You give them a little rub, a little yeah. tug, and all of a sudden you've got some nutches. There you go. There you go. Yeah, I definitely suck the milk out of a cow before I do that. Okay. Okay. So, but but I agree with you. By the way, I think she. I don't think she tripped over an almond though. Like Troy says, she tripped. What if? What if it was quite a big almond? Yeah, and it had been 
slightly stimulated by Troy beforehand. Not necessarily right, right. milk. Pre-milking. Pre-milking, yeah. so it's just a little bit, you know... Prepped. Prepped, a little bit lubricated. Mm. And it's a tiled floor, nice shiny tiled floor, and she's walking along in her bare feet, steps on the almond, and the, alm- the almond goes zoop, and she trips. Maybe this is a practical joke by Troy. Yes, that's true. We've assumed his innocence in yeah. this affair. And uh, he potentially could be trying to murder his wife with lubricated almonds. Maybe, just scattered nuts across the kitchen floor. Yeah. I think that she... I think she slipped on a nut. That's what I'm going to say. I think that's right. I think that's right. Do you? Yeah. I'm so surprised. (laughs) Why? I don't know. I just... I'm so rarely right. It was just an incredible feeling. So, hang on. (laughs) You agree she slipped on a nut. She neither tripped on a nut nor, nor fell, fell off, off a nut. She she slipped on a nut. Yeah. Mm. So what are go. these nuts doing all over the floor? It's very suspicious, Troy. It is. You're just leaving these nuts around. Walnuts here, macadamia nuts yeah. there, some pistachios. Like, <laughs> you know, just even the, the, the sharp shell of the pistachio could cut the bottom of her foot open and she develops an infection and sepsis and dies. And Troy's there going, oh, well, now I've got the life insurance, the life of Riley for me. And nobody suspects because who's ever killed anyone with pistachio nuts before? Nobody. No. What if his no. wife has a nut allergy? Lots of people well, have I those. I mean, that, that adds a whole new layer to it. This Troy guy could be quite diabolical. He really could. He really um, could. But his terminology is all wrong. His wife slipped on the nut. <laughs> she did not. She did not trip over it, nor fall off it. Well, I hope she's well. Um, That's all I can say. And uh, I hope she's recovering. Know, I think we I put paid to his, uh, his, his master plan of doing, yeah. doing away with her which is, you know, shouldn't do that, Troy. Um, right, we better leave it there. If you want to read uh, Andrew Allen's uh, fantastic interview with Per Mertesacker, it is available right now on Arsblog News, which is arsblog.news. You can uh, you can see it there. Um, we'll have an Arscast for you on Friday, looking ahead to the Watford game and, uh, you know, whatever else has gone on between now and then. And James and I will be back on Monday. Yeah, Monday. Monday. Uh, yeah. To do the Arscast Extra as normal in its regular time, uh, regular day and all that kind of stuff. So join us for that one. Until then. Bye-bye. holiday season, treat yourself. Treat yourself to candy. Celebrate the holiday season with the Holiday Crush. They've sprinkled candy with a holiday theme and fun-packed challenges every week for five whole weeks, finishing on January 4th. The more challenges you complete, the better your chances of unwrapping delicious rewards. So, are you ready to crush the holidays? Play the Holiday Crush now. Download it from the App Store, Google Play, or Windows Store for free. Terms and conditions apply.